Hello everyone, my name is Kate Radford and I serve as the Associate Director for Leadership Education and Development in the Center for Student Leadership and Engagement at Clemson University. And I am thrilled to be your guest host on the NASPA Leadership Podcast for the next few episodes while we delve into women and leadership with Dr. Julie Owen. Over the next three installments of the NASPA Leadership Podcast, we are going to have an opportunity to hear from Julie and some of her esteemed colleagues as we explore some of the primary topics of her new book, We Are the Leaders We've Been Waiting For, Women and Leadership Development in College. So I'm joined today by Dr. Julie Owen. Julie is an Associate Professor of Leadership Studies at George Mason University, where she coordinates the Leadership Studies major and minor and teaches interdisciplinary courses on socially responsible leadership, civic engagement, higher education, and community-engaged research. She is a senior scholar for Mason's Center for the Advancement of Well-Being and also teaches in the higher education program and in women and gender studies. In addition to authoring We Are the Leaders We've Been Waiting For, she is a co-editor of the Handbook for Student Leadership Development and editor of the inaugural edition of New Directions for Student Leadership. She serves on several research teams, including the Multi-Institutional Study of Leadership Institutional Survey and the Leadership Identity Development Project. Julie attended the College of William and Mary, where she received her BA in Psychology and English. She went on to receive an MED in College Student Personnel Administration from James Madison University, a Certificate of Nonprofit Administration from Duke University, and her PhD in college student personnel from the University of Maryland College Park. Julie frequently serves as a presenter and keynote speaker on topics related to leadership, social change, and organizational development. Julie, I am a big fan, and I know I'm not alone, <laughs> but for folks that haven't had the good fortune of meeting you, I want us um, to have an opportunity for you to tell people a little bit about yourself. So I've got a couple, hopefully, fun questions to ask you. Uh-oh. No. <laughs> just so we can get to know you a little bit before we dig into some of the concepts in the book. So your days are full of research, teaching, and inspiring uh, our next generation of leaders, but if you could choose to do anything for a day, what would it be? Mm, good question. Well, first of all, Kate, thank you for that very nice intro, and I'm so glad you didn't give the my graduation years as part <laughs> of all that, so thank you for doing that. Um, let's Absolutely. see, anything for a day? Well, right now, it would probably be leave the house, haha, -ha. you know, I know everybody's in the same boat, but <laughs> it would be so nice to sort of walk around unencumbered, um, um, and I know that'll be a while for us, but for me, anything involving water or the beach um, mm. makes me happy, so I think a day at the beach with my friends and family probably would have carbs and wine there and, yes. you know, sunset and, you know, some great books to read. And um, that would be my ideal of heaven, you know, my idea of heaven. <laughs> that does sound wonderful right now and at any time, but particularly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it must be a real accomplishment to see your name on the front of a completed text, especially a book like your new text. Um, but I'm curious, who is your favorite author? This is such a hard question, Kate. This is like asking me to choose. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a parent, but I'd imagine it'd be like asking to your favorite child, right? I'm not even going to touch leadership authors because too many of them are my dear friends and I wouldn't want to pick <laughs> So, yes, so I do read a lot. I read maybe 50, 60 books a year, like for pleasure. So that's um, wow. something that's a big hobby. I don't know, an activity of mine. Um, that does not including scholarly reading, but I'm a big like Ann Patchett. Um, Jennifer Egan, Kate Atkins, I don't know if you read any of these people, and then David Sedaris, you know, humor books um, right now. But right now I'm reading Barbara Kingsolver's Unsheltered, which is so, she's an amazing, she's another favorite author, um, but it's such an interesting book about um, what it means to have security, and it's one of those flashback books where there's it's an 1800s family and then a modern family, and how we're still addressing similar issues about housing and belonging, and anyway, it's deep. Love it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm writing all of these down because I do feel like I have more time for reading right now. And yeah, exactly. The one better. Like, things I'm going to do more of, but good. Okay. Um, okay. Last maybe fun question for you. So I will tell you that your book has certainly inspired me to take more risk and to let go of some things that have held me back. Um, what's the most daring thing that you've ever done? Oh my gosh, that's such a hard question. I'm um, like the first thing that jumped to my mind are like physical daring, you know, which I've, I've done some pretty, like I've jumped off the cliff in Jamaica, like many people. Um, and I, you know, did some nighttime cave diving. Um, 
Oh. Probably the dumbest thing I ever, well, I don't know. In college, I had like a streaking moment. <laughs> it was sort of a, one of the university rituals to sort of run through the Sun Good Gardens of Colonial Williamsburg. <laughs> so that was probably, looking back, I'm like, that was super daring slash stupid. <laughs> so, but then I thought you could also take this as like, you know, a Brene Brown emotional daring, like saying love someone without them saying it back. Or I don't know, like there's some of those things that are out there too. Oh, that is very um, true. Yeah, this could about be you? Are you game? Can I ask you this question? Have you thought about what you're daring? <laughs> That's a good question. I think, um, so I studied abroad um, mm -hmm. in college, and that was a while ago. Again, we won't share dates, um, but I um, went to Perth, Australia, and I think that that is probably the most daring thing I've done. It was literally, I think, the furthest I could get from home. Uh, <laughs> I went not knowing anyone um, for about six months. And it was amazing. I mean, totally worth it, right? Like when we talk about taking risk and then the payoff, I think I grew so much and learned so much. But um, yeah, it was really, it was scary. I think people were like, Australia, that's like a, you know, it's a, that is far away. <laughs> and it was. Yeah. Well, and I think any solo travel, especially as a woman also, yeah, there's a lot of, um, Absolutely. And then think about your parents and your families who like you do that or how that's going to be when your children want to go to have that adventure. What are you going right? to do? I can imagine if my kids said they wanted to go somewhere. Like, no, no, no. It's too far. Way too far. Yeah. I mean, I remember telling people when I got there, like the flight alone, it was like 24 hours of to get there. I'm like, it's not like I can pop on a plane and get home. So yeah, I think that for me was, was pretty daring. I had had a pretty, um, so I went about six hours away from home to go to college, but that was like my parents' maximum. Like they drew a radius around our hometown and said, this is as far as you can go. And so the caveat they forgot to build in there, or I guess the clause I found, the, the loophole, was that they did not say anything about study abroad. So I, <laughs> I love that. What a rich, you know, rich learning. I mean, it seems like the more daring you are, sometimes the more learning comes out of it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'm curious. So this isn't your first time on the podcast. You were on two times in 2017 with one of my very favorite people and dear colleague, Miles Surrett. Um, And on one of those visits, you were joined by Dr. Sherry Watt and Dr. John Dugan, and you did a really insightful review of leadership in 2017. So if you were to redo that podcast in 2020 and discuss some things you've learned about leadership in the past year, or things you've noticed, what kinds of things come to mind? Well, first of all, that was such an honor. I don't know how I got included on that dream team of Dr. Watt and Dr. Dugan, but um, I kept sitting there thinking, one of these things is not like the other, you know? No. So as we talk about imposter syndrome later, probably in the, this, our podcast, I definitely had that feeling then. Um, well, so much stuff right now, I'm sure, especially in keeping with the theme of our conversation, but I'm fascinated about um, all these reports about how countries with women heads of state, like New Zealand and Germany and Taiwan, a lot of the Nordic countries seem to be like leading more effectively during this time, their male mm -hmm. counterparts. So I think it'd be really interesting to sort of dive into women heads of state and how an ethic of care versus one of authoritarianism like shaped their whole sort of cultural response to pandemic. I mean, I don't know. I think that's really fascinating right now. I don't know if other people are um, reading that, but um, kind of coming out early and talking about civic responsibility. You know, in the U.S., we have such a rights centered kind of approach to democracy instead of responsibility centered approach to democracy. So mm -hmm. I'd love to dive more into that and its connection to leadership and um, really connects with some of the stories I try to tell in my book. So yeah, those are very insightful things. I agree on those. Um, we have been doing some sessions at Clemson to try to, we're calling them embracing community um, and sort of trying to, I guess, offset some of, I think the, uh, tendency during a, a crisis like this to kind of look inward and to um, really be a little bit self-centered and selfish sometimes, you know, and I think that's warranted in this situation, but also we want to encourage our students to like continue to reach out and think about other people and think about how this is impacting other people. And so we did an embracing community session about COVID and uh, gender and uh, came up and we, we talked a good bit about that piece of how different uh, heads of state have handled this crisis very differently. It was a, a really hot topic for our students. They really wanted to talk about that for a while. So something our, our students are noticing as well. I'm so glad you did that. I completely agree. You know, when you are feeling isolated, 
you reach out, you know, like help someone else. And that's the way to find meaning and purpose. So I love that you are sort of using that as an antidote to all the isolation that students are probably experiencing right now. That's fantastic. I have to get my hands on that. <laughs> yeah, we, we really weren't sure how it was going to go. We offered one and said, we'll see if anyone comes. And um, we were shocked by the response and just the engagement from our students and so we're gonna we're gonna keep them up throughout the summer even though our sort of official programming has ended for the academic year so we're excited about that so. well dig in a little bit and start talking some about the book and um again some of just there's so many so many things in here that i want to talk about and great topics and things that you help the reader to think about but i want to start um but sort of just talking, I guess, about some of the motivations of the book and I guess thinking about um, sort of big picture, uh, 30,000 foot view, I guess. Um, the book opens with a great foreword written, um, Dr. Heather Shea has a portion in there and she really eloquently points out the need for this book by noting her struggle in trying to find a text to utilize with students and student groups she worked with as a director of a women's center. And, she notes that the ones she found were focused on what she calls feminine models of leadership that were really limiting and also negatively reinforced a gender binary. So um, I think that's an excellent way to sort of open the book to think about the some of the, the void that existed and she points out for her certainly in her practitioner role that it was a struggle. So what kind of motivated you to write the book? Is it in line with that? Where did you see a void in the literature? Sort of where do you think some other texts have fallen short on this topic? Yeah, I'm with Heather. She and I were having simultaneous experiences on opposite sides of the country, I think. And I'm sure we weren't alone. Like anybody who's sort of started to look in the women in leadership literature from the past 10 or 15 years um, probably would find the same problems um, or issues. So I've been teaching both like uh, student affairs programs co-curricular programs around gender and leadership, and then also academic-based courses for the last 20 years or so. Um, and in my classes specifically, I was relying on texts like Easley and Carly's Through the Labyrinth is probably the most, to me, certainly the most rigorous empirical text on women in leadership. Um, and Kellerman and Rohde's Women in Leadership, which are both from 2007. So first of all, they hadn't updated those texts and I kept waiting and waiting. <laughs> so so yeah. one of the, no, issue number one was that the students were trying to roll their eyes about the, these books I was using. Um, and, but they also were missing something, um, I think, in that they pro primarily focused on women's achievement in corporate America. Um, and so much of the literature on women's leadership is about like climbing the ladder to the C-suite, right? And that was not really speaking to the students I work with. I have a very, I come from a very diverse campus in every sense of the word. Um, students from over 100 countries and students who, many students who I, um, are undocumented or who are first generation transfer students, just all these different forms of marginalization. And those students, many of them weren't kind of seeking that kind of leadership in their future. They wanted to run a nonprofit or work on policy issues. Um, or engage in social activism, or even be a social innovator or entrepreneur. And those texts that were like, this is how you get ahead in corporate America, weren't really speaking to their aspirations. So first issue was the texts weren't matching what my students wanted. And then yeah. also, because those books were kind of prior to some of the newer literature, um, none of those books really addressed how intersectionality and other dimensions of identity affected that climb, right? Um, Chin and Lott had a book in 2007, Women in Leadership, Transforming Visions and Diverse Voices, but that did include perspectives from women of color, but it was much more essentialist, like each chapter focused on a um, particular aspect of identity. So I think we've moved past that now. Um, and so this idea that we need to talk about um, issues of structural underrepresentation um, and the roles of power and privilege and leadership in intersectional ways. Um, so that's sort of reason number two. And reason number three is the leadership research um, had moved really far too, as far as Dugan's work on um, the intersections of efficacy, motivation, capacity, and enactment for leadership. Um, and then finally, I wanted a book that was developmental in nature. So it wasn't just like, go do this, but was sort of talking about how people can evolve more complex ways of knowing, being, and doing on their journey. So anyway, I was seeking that book that didn't exist. It was like a holy grail. I looked every, I spent hours and lots of, um, reading lots of uh, manuscripts and other books looking for the thing. And I sort of had given up and my class was, you know, a packet of 150 PDFs. <laughs> the students were 
sort of frustrated that the through line was hard to identify. Um, so they, so one, of the, one day a student actually said, why don't you write the book, Professor? And I, you know, it was one of those moments where you're like, uh-oh. <laughs> All of a sudden I felt like called to do it. Um, and so I knew it was something I had to try. So that's sort of the nexus of it. So I hope the book addresses each of those holes, I guess. I think it does. Um, it is, I have been very inspired by reading it and very excited to utilize it with programs that we do at Clemson. And, um, but yeah, I think the things you're speaking to, you're right. I mean, we, I, I feel like I piecemeal things together to do this versus there being some sort of comprehensive text. And I think you've gotten really, really close to it with your, with your book. So I'm really, really excited to use it. Well, you're so kind. I don't know if listeners understand that you had to read the whole book like, <laughs> in advance of publication. So you were reading a draft with errors and typos. And so I'm just so appreciative um, of you taking the time to do that in order to conduct this series. Uh, oh, I feel like I got like an insider. It was great. <laughs> look before other people can, you know, it's, it felt, it was a, a badge of honor for me for sure. No, um, no sense of duty at all. It was, I was happy to do it, excited to do it. So well, you probably felt as you're reading, you know, it's actually an impossible task to teach a one semester course or workshop series or to write a book that covers everything about feminism and everything about leadership and intersections of the two and is developmental, right? Like right. it covers every sector of industry. So, you know, there was really challenges in thinking about how to craft it um, so that it wasn't just an inch deep and a mile wide or, you know, and I wanted to incorporate data and student stories. So, it was a challenging. I was never really sure I was going to be able to pull it off. So it was, uh, it was tough to sort of, there were so many things I wanted to put in it that were, you know, I wasn't able to in this version, right? Well, it, and yeah, and it was amazing to me as I read it, you know, not to, not to act as if I'm any kind of expert, but there was so much in the book where I was like, I didn't know that. What? Uh, you know, like these um, historical things you pointed out, um, just like statistics, like you said, incorporating a lot of data, which I really appreciated, just things that I was, I was shocked by. And I was like, oh my gosh, if I'm shocked by this, what would, I think just an average, you know, college student or anyone really just like think about some of these things, given that I feel like I've explored these topics through my career, through my personal life, my professional life, and I was still learning so, so much as I read it. So thank you. Yeah, that it definitely gave me, it gave me like license to go into like different fields where I actually had no competence or knowledge and like try to learn. So, you know, it definitely was a learning journey along the way as well. Um, I have, um, I, don't, I think I've shared the story before, but I'm, um, my Myers-Briggs is ENTJ. And the, what it says about that, one of the downsides of that Myers-Briggs type is sometimes more confident than your abilities warrant, right? Like mm -hmm. jump in and say yes. And then we're like, oh, I can't, I don't really, I can't really do this. <laughs> like, I don't really know anything about this. So I definitely had those moments where I'm like, why did I think I could write this book? And there were issues that I know little about. And there were so many more people who knew more about it. So there was an interesting hubris that went along with writing it. Um, but again, I took a learner approach and hopefully invited the reader to bring their own lenses and perspectives as well. But well, yeah, and I think, you know, you touch on, too, an, a gender issue that you point out in the book, and that I think many of us are aware of, that this imposter syndrome idea or the idea that, you know, possibly someone who identifies um, differently in their gender might have taken that on without much thought of, oh, I'm actually not as prepared for this, um, you know, that there are Certainly, you pointed out a, 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 some data I had heard at one point um, about the idea of women don't apply for positions unless they almost, I think it's like 95% or some sort of high, very high statistic, maybe it's 100% of the requirements of the job. If, if I don't match every one of those, I'm not going to apply. Um, but that men will apply with much lower uh, levels of capacity around some of the position requirements. So I'm glad that you took the dive and went for it, even if <laughs> like maybe you were taking on something a little bit big and new because I think you did an excellent job. So well, well, a fun unintended outcome is because I was so transparent about what I don't know and um, needed so much community support, which I'll talk about in a minute of different voices along the way. That um, one of my I have some students in our research and they're like, if you I feel like if you can write a book, I could write a book. So I think I've really been encouraging other people's advocacy, Kate. So maybe you you probably got a book mm -hmm. in you. I'd love to see what that is, but. Um, um, I do think there's something about showing people the process that made them feel capable um, yeah. of maybe we'll see some future books from some 
uh, graduate students and undergrads who are part of the process. So I hope so. I hope so. Well, you touched on this a little bit as you talked about sort of this learner approach that you took and certainly writing a text like this is a labor of love, but what kept you inspired to complete it? Like, how did you, you know, that's a, it's a daunting task to write a text like this. <laughs> That's such a great question, Kate. Like so many people ask you the first question, but they don't think about the second question. So thank you for starting and finishing are really different processes. And yes. um, I know myself very well. So what I did was I had scheduled for my class to use the manuscript before I was actually done writing. <laughs> so That's I was staying good like, motivation. <laughs> yeah. So I was staying you know, two weeks ahead of the students reading for one for one semester. <laughs> Wow. Um, yeah, so it was really, um, I, they were, they helped me put it through. I had, you know, skeletons, but I was really um, racing the clock one semester to sort of get them manuscripts. And then they, it was very iterative. They would give me feedback and we, you know, we create learning from that. But um, yeah, it was helpful for me to have an external deadline because Stylus as a publisher was so generous and was like, whatever works for you. So I was like, oh, I need, I need some more stick with that carrot, right? <laughs> so. For sure. I imagine too that some of what you uncovered in doing your own research and, and preparing to write inspired you. I know that you you talk a good bit in the book about um, Helen Astin's sort of these labels of like the instigators and the inheritors and sort of the people that are, are with you on the journey and the people that you leave a legacy behind for. And I imagine as you read more and more and discovered some, you know, very disheartening information at times about you know, inequities, um, that that, I, hope, I assume, inspired you as well to, to keep it going. Absolutely, and I thank you for saying that, but I, I've forgotten, um, well, as for people who are not familiar with the book, it actually weaves in student narratives, and so I did feel, and these student narratives um, were from a two-year research team process, so mostly of undergraduates and some graduate students, where we actually did what's called a collective autoethnography process, where students actually wrote personal stories about their experiences of gender and leadership and then shared them in community. And then we did reflective um, writing to each other about how their story connected with our own story. Like it was just this very cool iterative process. Um, but yes, I certainly felt pressure to do the stories justice that I had gathered. So there was definitely that moment where I was like, this has to happen because this group of amazing, talented women uh, um, identified people had taken so much time um, and been so vulnerable in sharing their stories that I need to make sure that the framing around it was worthy, you know? So I, yes, I definitely felt that too. Absolutely. And I think, you know, thinking about the people that came before you who helped clear the path. Um, I think sometimes I, I forget about those people when I'm thinking about social change and the ways I want to further social change. There's this connotation that what's happened to this point is not enough, but realizing how much is already the, the, the path that's been cleared for me, I think a lot about, you know, my grandmothers and um, my mom and people that have, have absolutely gotten me to the point where a text like this might even resonate and um, be really received by college students. You know, it's very different than what might have existed 20, 30, 50 years ago. So, yeah. And how do we honor those four mothers, right? Um, if people haven't read the Aston Leland, it's called Women of Influence, Women of Vision. I think it's 1991. It might be 1993. Press. Um, probably before many listeners were born, but it's such a powerful book. And I remember reading going, this is the book I wanted to write. You know, it was one of those ones that just spoke, every chapter spoke to me about the power of predecessors as it come before, people who are currently instigating around gender justice and who inherits the work that we do that comes after us. So it's this really beautiful lens. And then I actually turned that into a project my students do in classes or workshops about interviewing a predecessor, instigator, inheritor, mm -hmm. um, and so that we have a facilitation guide that goes along with the book and that assignment is in there as well. Um, that, that it can be a really cool way for students to learn some things about their own stories. Um, yeah, I love that. I'm going to use that. <laughs> um, well, switching, not switching gears, we're definitely staying in the same zone here, but talk to me a little bit about there's this um, idea put forward again in the foreword about um, and Dr. Heather Shea, again, and Dr. Kristen Renner, who write that, they talk about um, the difference between feminine and feminist leadership. Can you talk a little bit more about sort of what those differences are, or that shift, and sort of how it underscores the book a bit? Yes, and this was such a powerful piece. Um, 
Shay and Ren have a chapter in Paige Haber-Curran and Dan Tillepaz. There's a new directions for student leadership on gender, critical perspectives on gender and leadership, which is fantastic. Boy, that's a, um, those are now all usually available through your library for downloads. They're not doing print issues anymore, but likely people can get that whole volume is excellent. But Shay and Ren's chapter in there um, was really pivotal to me as sort of the framing of the book. And then that was so blown away when they said they wouldn't mind writing the preface, so it was wonderful. But they really do, they describe the shift from feminine leadership, which really refers to like early studies of women in leadership, which looked how women, how do women lead differently than men, right? So every study um, initially around gender and leadership was framed in these comparative ways and binary ways, first of all. And then the results were always, female, feminine leaders are caring collaborative and male leaders are assertive lone wolves. Right. And so um, they kind of call that out, all that research out. And so when people talk about this binary feminine kind of leadership, they're actually reinforcing essentialist and heteronormative ways of being. Right. So um, so it's a slippery slope. Um, there's some writing about the precarious pedestal of feminine leadership. So this idea you say, if you're women leaders have to lead this way. Um, what if you're a woman and you aren't woman identified and you aren't caring or you aren't um, don't um, always love to work in as part of a collaborative experience, then all of a sudden you're um, ostracized or not able or leadership isn't open to you for some reason. Or if you're a nurturing male leader, um, that doesn't fit the gendered stereotype. So part of what we try to do in the book is to um, de-gender leadership. Um, and so let's stop looking at these binary comparisons when actually there's a part in the book where we look at the actual effect sizes and this is another shout out to Eagley and Carly's good original research, but when you look at actual differences and all kinds of attributes and outcomes of leadership, there are very, very few and very small effect size differences around gender and leadership. So even when you do the binary studies, there's not that much there there, right? So mm -hmm. Shay and Ren, instead we shift it, we shift from feminine to like thinking of feminist ways of leading, um, which they call both a philosophical stance and a way of leading that can be employed by any one of any gender, including cisgender men, can do feminist leadership. And they say there's three different interconnected tools of feminist leadership. And um, do we have time for me to tell you what they are? Because they're really good. Yeah, <laughs> so, please do. Please do. So I think it's really pivotal. Yeah, the they say first feminine, and again, it's Shay and Ren's 2017 work. Um, but feminist leaders use and subvert power structures, right? So one of their quotes is, for people should not shy away from power, but use it to their own advantage to create equity. And I credit a colleague of mine, Paul Gorski, who taught me about spending your privilege, right? So like, mm -hmm. how do women sort of claim the power available to them and then spend that uh, power to create more equitable and just spaces? Uh, and that includes gaming and challenging oppressive structures, um, you know, empowering people to the extent that you can believe in that. And I think we're going to come back to empowerment in a little bit, um, working to balance power. Secondly, feminist leaders complicate difference. So this means, again, troubling those, that false dualism, that false binary of man, woman, but even the false binary of leadership. So leader, follow, I'm a leader, a follower. Well, we're all both and we're all, and hopefully something in between, right? Um, but that is not an identity we hold. I'm a follower in life. Um, hopefully not. <laughs> so we need to complicate that, right? So we need to complicate both gender and leadership and look at the intersectional spaces where people can insert leadership um, and find that people are practicing both feminism and leadership in really completely different ways, um, but all valid, right? And then finally, the third characteristic is feminist leaders enact social change. Um, so this idea that um, it's not enough to just do self-leadership, but you must sort of think about the linkages between women, women's liberation and other social change movements and find ways to contribute to that. Um, and then I love this quote I'm going to read to you from Shane Rand. It is not enough just to talk about justice and equity. Feminist leaders engage in advocacy and activism to counteract injustice. So we can't, we got to walk the walk. It's not just talking the talk. So to me, this is like, oh, thank you, Shane Rand. And this is what we really want for our for students. Um, and because they are both student affairs educators, they really, this is the kind of developmental approach I want to take. So let's stop putting women on precarious pedestals and stop kind of talking about what feminine leadership is and let's get into feminist leadership. And you notice this actually led to a shift in the title of the book. It's not, the several editors kept putting back women's leadership. I'm like, no, it's women and leadership. <laughs> the class is not women's leadership. The workshop is not women's leadership. It's women and leadership. Yeah. For all those reasons I just described. 
So you've got me totally thinking. So I, I had the same exact thought when I read the book. I was like, oh gosh, we have to our we have a we have a women's leadership conference at Columbia. Well, not next year. We don't. We have a women in leadership conference starting in 2021. Because um, yeah, it, it is a significant shift to talk about women and leadership versus this idea of how do we create feminine leaders. Um, I, I like too that you talked in the book about the idea that a, a lot of those feminine models are seeking to kind of remake women to be more effective in, you know, quote unquote, a man's world, right? Like we're, we're going to teach you how to, how to do this thing to fit in versus complicating things and challenging socialization around gender and leadership. Um, Cause I, I do think that the idea like the climbing the corporate ladder and that you spoke to earlier, it does, it's, it's seeking to, we're going to empower women to, to use a hierarchical and competitive style and, and fit in um, or yeah, be, stereotypically or um, maybe how you're socialized to think as a woman about caring and a good teammate and all those things. And, and that those ways don't work for every person or every woman. Yes. And you should, women should be able to have a good idea and not have to bake cookies to sell it. Right. <laughs> like, yes. um, I mean, that's what the scholarship shows is that women can be agentic or, or, uh, you know, being effective in leadership and trying to get stuff done, but they have to balance it with this ethic of care or they're dismissed as either too bitchy ineffective so they can't just lead with effectiveness they have to also balance um caring and agentic their agentic nature so yeah we need to like trouble all of that and think about those as a child of the 80s we really did that's exactly what you said kate we were we were trained on how to fit in like big shoulder the more we look like a man let's look like a man with giant shoulder pads and ties and there were lessons on how to lower your voice so that you got taken seriously more. <laughs> so, so, and you know, hopefully those campuses are not still doing those workshops. I hope not. <laughs> I hope not as well, but um, it, yeah, I totally, totally hear what you're saying. Yep. Well, I'm going to officially go on record and say that I can't recommend the book enough and I really hope it will be um, utilized in a lot of settings, but I'm curious, as you set out to write, sort of who was your primary audience and, and who, who do you think really should utilize the book or would benefit from utilizing the book? Well, the audience is definitely college students, but I say that with college students of any age, gender, stage. Um, the students in my Women in Leadership classes range from 16 to 75 some semesters. Um, and um, so, but I wanted it to have college in the title because I think um, as I said, I wanted people to acknowledge this was a developmental book, not a sort of how to win the corporate battle kind of book. So to me, it's for people who are interested in developing their leadership skills, abilities, and knowledge. Um, it could be that people use it in leadership courses that have a gender focus, but there's also gender courses that have a leadership focus. Um, one of the things I found that's so interesting is I'll get a lot of people in my classes who would never sign up for a women's studies course but when I call it women in leadership, they sign up and then they say, oh, I guess I am a feminist. Like one of my secret goals is to get them all to be feminists by the end. But it's so yeah. interesting how they would never, um, it's actually been a way for them to come to their own awakening kind of through a side door to gender studies and gender equity work um, um, that feels more comfortable than maybe showing up at the Women's Center for a program. So um, it's been really interesting to watch them navigate all of that. Um, I've also seen this book used in the co-curriculum, common reading groups, um, learning communities, conferences. Um, um, people can use, I wrote it in a way that I think people can use standalone chapters. I know at Florida State this fall or, or this summer, they're using a couple of the chapters that really speak to the curriculum they're trying to do in an in intro to leadership class. Um, or you could use the whole book, et cetera. The only place I think it would not be, here's my one story where it should not be used. <laughs> my mom, who's lovely, um, she, and she's the dedicatee, right? So I dedicated the book to her because she was my first example of a woman practicing leadership, but she's very powerful in all kinds of ways um, as far as how she carries herself. But um, she's like, she was so honored, I think, that I put her as the dedicatee. And she said, I'm going to make my book club read it. And I said, well, you should you should read it first, mom. It's, you know, it's a textbook for college. So she's like, no, no, they're going to read it. And you can come talk to them. And then she started reading the book and she wrote me back and said, yeah, it's a lot of data in here. So I don't think my book club would like it. So, so maybe oh, it's not for that. mom's book club, but it's sort of, it does have an academic audience. Kind of advice. For sure. Oh, that is 
sort of the sweetest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, that's really sweet. Adorable. Yeah, I really liked how the book, it really did read to me. I mean, and you can tell that you ended it to be very student facing with examples and activities throughout it. Um, it reminded me a lot of when I have taught leadership classes in the past and utilizing exploring leadership sort of has like that feel, but that I felt like it really was such an incredible tool for me as a leadership educator to shape you know, identity-based leadership initiatives that I do. And, and to be honest, real implications, I think for me as a leader in my personal and professional life, you know, I'm, I'm far past traditional college age and I still felt like it had really significant opportunities for me to, to reflect and um, process my own leadership. So I think the audience is, is pretty far reaching or potential audience is pretty far reaching. Well, I wrote in chapter one, it's definitely not trying to sell a particular viewpoint. So hopefully there'll be something in there that everyone, you know, each person finds something they agree with and something they disagree with. <laughs> so I even write it, I think in the first chapter, like feel free to yell at the book or email me if you disagree, because um, you can't capture all the voices in one text. Um, so there's, and there's some places where I don't answer questions. We just talked a little bit earlier about degendering leadership. Um, uh, Ty, um, a colleague from University of Denver who's reading the book right now with her students, said, or maybe we need to regender leadership because we can't check our bodies at the door. So she and I had this big discussion about degendering or regendering. And then so I ended up just putting that tension in the book, like writing both sides of that story. And um, one of my students was like, you don't answer this question, do you? I'm like, nope, nope. What do you think? So hopefully, it, you know, it helps people engage in inquiry or they can have their own discussions with their own friends other leadership nerds who want to talk about degendering or regendering leadership. Well, I think that's really helpful because, um, you know, I think there's so many leadership texts that are out there. They're like, just follow these steps. If you do two, three, four, you are a leader. Um, And it's so, um, I I don't know. I think it's like so belittling to the the field of leadership that the idea that we can just simplify it down to like four steps or five steps or, you know, five ways of being or whatever. Um, so I like that you, that you don't just say, just do these things. And this is how you can be effective as a woman um, in leadership, but that you say, here's an opportunity to reflect on this and think what you think about it. And um, that part of the act of leadership is being able to critically reflect. So. So we hope. Can you, can, can you talk a little bit? I know you were maybe thinking about using the book at Clemson. What ways would you, were you thinking that it might apply there? Yeah, so two ways for me. One, personally, how I hope to use it, and two, how I hope to influence some other people to use it. So we do <laughs> a women in leadership um, academic program at Clemson that is a full major and also a minor, um, and, and sort of that idea that you spoke to about um, you get more people in the door when you call it women in leadership and, and maybe not gender studies. That is exactly the situation I think at Clemson was um, that there for a long time struggles around, um, around gender studies programs and just enrollment and interests and perceptions and all of that. And the women's leadership program has just taken off. There are so many students who are interested in approaching from that angle. So I'm really hopeful. <laughs> I don't have a whole lot of say in that, but I'm keep mentioning it anytime I can that I hope it's a textbook that'll be utilized for those classes. Um, so we'll see on that front. And then for me, I do mostly co-curricular programming. And so, um, I really hope to use it one to, again, I'm going to rethink just the name. of our. <laughs> so starting there, um, but I, I think it's just sort of reinvigorated my interest in identity-based leadership programming and, and, and to think about the nuances that are there and, um, the, the differences. And, and I just said, you know, that I don't think leadership should be follow these four steps. But I think sometimes when we try to do large scale leadership programming, um, we lose some of the, the uniqueness of, of varying identities. And so certainly for gender, but also this, I think, helped me to think about, about other identities as well, and, and how we talk about the intersections of identity and leadership, because they are really crucial. Yes. Great. That's exciting. Yeah. So more to come, more to come. <laughs> um, so you mentioned that there was a title change um, and I love the title of the book, but you note in the book that it's, it's kind of a call to action of sorts, right? That change isn't going to come and wait for someone else to make it, that we are the leaders we've been waiting for. Um, so what are, can you talk to me about some of the ways that you've seen people stepping up to that call in recent months? 
Oh, yeah, that's a great question. And so many examples. Um, before I do, I want to talk a little bit more about the title, which was, um, it was so nice. I got to do my last class with the Women in Leadership class last night. And I said, I got to end, you know, we're on virtual learning. So I was like, you know, we read this book this semester. What do you think? And I said, I want to tell, I said, I don't tell them that you are the leaders I've been waiting for. And then we all burst into tears. Like it was just really nice. It was this really nice moment where uh, we all cried together. I mean, it's a special kind of class experience. But um, I do think that's true that there, that um, the generation coming up now has, has already complicating notions of gender and leadership in new ways. And they're leading in a completely different kind of world than the one that came before. I'm really optimistic and hopeful for um, how leadership will shift and change in all kinds of ways in the future. So um, I thought that the the title spoke to them. And then um, another thing is it makes a terrible acronym. So if you try to write W-A, we are the leader. Anyway, so we've been calling it WOW, the WOW book, Women in Leadership. So that's just a little tip of someone trying to write W-B-W-F-W-L. Anyway, so oh, good it's point. easier yeah. to use the W-A-L acronym, but um, that's the book title. Um, but your question about what, what people are stepping up to, my goodness, isn't, aren't we living in the middle of a leadership case study, a reality is a leadership um, story? So for every example, you know, where someone's tell this negativity of people hoarding supplies and refusing to consider the effects of their actions on others. Um, oh, that guy who spit on the person in the grocery store, you know, yeah. for all those things that are so defeatist and saying everybody's out for themselves. There's so many inspiring stories, right? So people doing big things like our healthcare workers and essential employees risking their lives to save others, but also know smaller things of people sewing masks to share with their neighbors or I have a friend who goes to the grocery store um, every other day and brings food to all his uh, food insecure neighbors or people who are immunocompromised right and then all these people sharing the arts online like I just think there's so many examples of people seeking to connect and finding new ways to connect and make a difference even in this like ice potentially isolating world um, so yeah I do think there's lots of ways that people are making a difference right now I also yeah. think another weird thought I've had is that non-action has been a powerful form of action right now, right? <laughs> like resisting temptation yes. to go out and do stuff, um, to, you know, resisting seeing the grandkids as forms of sacrifice as a form of action and a form of Absolutely. leadership. So there's more to unpack there. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, those embracing community sessions that I mentioned we've been doing, we are, we're sort of excited. We're going to plan to wrap them up with a little bit of a we're going to talk about the cycle. We've introduced the cycle of um, cynicism early on, and I think we'll end with the cycle of hope and talk a little bit about some of the ways that, you know, really beautiful things have come out of this. Like, certainly I would not want to do it over, and I wouldn't wish it upon us again, but, you know, there, there are real ways that people have stepped up, and um, we're going to highlight some of those in a, as sort of a trying to end things a bit on a on a high note um, in those sessions. I'm really excited to dig into some of those stories of the ways people are small ways and big ways that people are making a difference in their community and, and helping those around them. So I think we need a podcast on that workshop, by the way. I'll just put that out there. So <laughs> I would listen I like to that. I'd like to listen to you talk more in depth about all that. <laughs> Official. We'll, we'll put it on the books. <laughs> Get someone else, right? You want to interview yourself. <laughs> it would be a little odd, yeah. <laughs> Um, so I want to ask you a little bit, sort of a personal question. So you state in the book that you think of yourself as a critical feminist and a critical leadership scholar. So how have you come into that identity and what does it mean for you and your, your teaching and your writing? Ooh, you're just asking really deep questions here. This is great. Yeah. This is not your phone it in podcast. These are really thoughtful questions, Kate. It's fantastic. I mean, I think my journey, um, because I, I came to leadership through service learning. So I started out in service learning mm -hmm. um, in, with my CSP master's program, my first job. And actually, it was even called volunteering there. It wasn't even called service learning, mm -hmm. right? But I do think that that field or that part of higher education was sort of quicker than leadership programs to adopt critical stances. So we quickly moved from volunteering and helping to service learning to learning through service to community-based learning to critical service learning, right? So that shift and even what we called that, and leadership really hasn't had that same progression, mm -hmm. um, or at least not as quickly about thinking about where is power in our actions? Are we serving for or serving with people? Are we leading on people or leading with them, right? So those, I think those, I was bringing a whole bunch of criticality from 
that field. Um, and so was surprised when people weren't asking those questions in leadership studies um, or in leadership education. I think that's shifting. And I think, again, the new generation of scholars coming forth is all about criticality. So, and they um, are interrogating big assumptions, right? Like one of the things that you said, what it means for my teaching and writing, I think sometimes it makes it really hard when you start asking the big questions. And one of the ones I keep, it keeps rearing its ugly head when I start to write or talk is, is leadership itself an exclusionary elitist endeavor, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, can we ever um, sort of relanguage it or make it more inclusive? Can we really just deconstruct it and then reconstruct it? Or we have to just throw it away and start over. So, so you know, have I dedicated my whole life? That's the question that keeps me up at night, right? To something that itself is exclusionary and elitist. So keeping to trouble that, um, I want to, Sonia Ardwan is doing, some, uh, she and Kathy Guthrie have a new directions coming out on leadership and social class and talk about things I'd never thought about before and um, to any degree of depth. Um, and she asked those questions in really powerful ways. So I'm just really excited about more and more people kind of coming to criticality. There's more books, um, uh, textbooks and books that have critical leadership as a focus. Um, C, uh, CLS, critical leadership studies, is now a Googleable term. And you know, people are writing even in like leadership quarterly and more the most scholarly leadership journals. It's, it's in there. So uh, even business journals, you'll see critical leadership studies. So it's becoming a thing, which excites me. And then you said, how does it shape teaching? Well, that's, students are already there mostly, like my students at least love to critique and question. So mm -hmm. it's easy. They actually get sort of the tools of deconstructing leadership. They actually come to that really naturally. It's been a little bit harder to get them to reconstruct. So now that we've torn the social change model apart about some inadequacies, what is still valuable and how do you put it back together again? <laughs> so helping them realize that um, theory and models exist for a reason and even theories that were um, developed in different kinds of times and for different populations um, still have really strong merits, even if it just led us to where we are today and how do they reconstruct what's good about an approach and use it. So that's the part I struggle with teaching when you become a critical scholar is the reconstruction after yes. the reconstruction. I'm so glad you said that because I think that that is absolutely where I struggle as well. I think you're right. Our students are, they're just more prone to these conversations. They've been having them more than I think I was ever educated to have. And, you know, they're, they're very uh, quick and um, happy to, to deconstruct. But that reconstruction piece, it's important. We can't just tear it apart and leave it and walk away. Like, what does it mean to, to reconstruct um, something that is going to be effective? I, I love to do this with, I mean, this is Dugan's book, which has a so well strengths finder. And I love to do that. We, I, have, I teach strengths finder from a place of believing and the students all fall in love with it. It's the best thing ever. And then we deconstruct it and talk about how, who it excludes and are these really strengths and um, how it's modified. And we go through all the deconstructions and they're like, strengths finder is the worst. We should never use strengths finder. And I said, but last week you said it was the best thing. And so, so it was sort of like, how can we still use, like, let's still use it. Let's still but let's use it in the right ways and let's use it with certain populations and let's make sure we're cautious and how we apply it. And, um, right. And just, and using it with that knowledge, not just use, accepting it at face. Yes. I think yes. is so important. The use after the critique. Right. So, yes. so we have to bring them back around, but some of them never get there. They stay in the different franchise. Well, speaking of, um, I guess sort of this, exclusion or inclusion uh, issues with leadership, the same has certainly been said about the feminist movement, that it has centered on white women, that it has excluded women of color from the conversation. Um, but you do a really amazing job sort of, of talking about that in the book um, and really trying to um, bring in intersectional identities. So I guess just broadly, what did, lessons did you learn from that, from doing that? Um, oh, and I'm still learning lessons. Um, you know, here I am writing a book because so much of what came before was written by white women for four, for white women. And I'm like, and I'm a white woman, right? <laughs> With all kinds of privileged identities, right? Yeah. Um, so really, to me, it's again been self-educating about all the ways that both leadership and fem femina um, feminism has been sort of an exclusionary endeavor. You know, we look at second wave feminist movements and working class women and women of color, 
you know, we're completely disenfranchised from that sort of time period where, you know, white women were like, we need to have access, we need to be able to work and bring home the bacon. And they're like, some of us haven't had the privilege to not work, right? Like so many people, you know, so that like, that's not a meaningful rally cry that white women want to go to work when women of color have been working for hundreds and thousands of years, right? Um, so there's just all these blind spots I, as a white woman, had about feminism um and still do i'm still kind of looking for those blinders or places where i miss it and um, we haven't talked about this yet but one of the coolest parts of the book journey was um i tried to engage in the feminist practice practice of inviting critical friends to look at the manuscript and show me where my blind spots were which was as you can imagine the hardest exercise and vulnerability i've ever experienced <laughs> but um i can't believe that wasn't your most daring thing because that sounds very daring <laughs> Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. Well, it was um, hard to like um, not be def like not that I'm normally defensive, but trying to like lean into it and say, what am I supposed to learn here? And you right. asked for this, Julie. Why is it? It was hard. But um, so I had young scholars, many women, women of color, um, um, women who were non-Christian, non-straight, right? So I had all these like, diverse group of women. Um, reading the manuscript and telling me, like, as I was writing it, they were like tearing it apart behind me, which was so good because learning from them, you know, Julie, you say you're intersectional, but then you write this whole thing about the dominant discourse and you put a paragraph in the end about women of color. I'm like, oh, I did do that, right? You know, so sort of learning that um, the ways that I thought I was being inclusive was still driven by my lenses and perspectives. So if, the, if you found the book successful at all because of that, it was because these women took time, their time and energy to educate me and those, you know, help me rethink parts of it. Um, so I'm so appreciative of that. Um, yeah, so I'll just say that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I want to, I feel like I could talk about this for hours and I um, know that, you know, a podcast is not intended to be a four hour thing. So we, <laughs> I'm going to skip through some things and ask you a little bit about um, some of the trends that you mention in the book, some data that comes out. Um, I know that many leadership educators will be familiar with the issue we know exists, um, according at least to some MSL data and some other things, that, that women have lower levels of self-efficacy despite higher levels of capacity around leadership. And the book points to a number of reasons for this, from things like stereotype threat to limiting modeling, limited modeling existing for the sort of for opportunities to practice leadership. Um, would you just share some thoughts on this? Maybe what you see as some of the, the biggest contributors to that, um, that disconnect between efficacy and capacity and some ways that you see that we can combat that? Yes, and I don't know, again, I think um, on my campus, this just shows up in spades. This is a pervasive longitudinal MSL finding for the multi-institutional study of leadership as well. Um, so um, that, that's some of the richest data we have on college student leadership, mostly in the US, but this idea that women are scoring higher on competency or socially responsible leadership, but lower on efficacy, belief that they can do leadership and men are the vice versa, right? They have much higher self-belief they're capable and then lower actual capacity skills. So how do we align confidence with capacity? in this work, but um, I just see this so many, I'll, I even say, how many of you think you're leaders on the first day of class? And it's mm -hmm. so interesting, the gender split, even they are in an intro to leadership class, right? Um, and so I feel a part of it is we exist in this Western society is a hierarchical, competitive, you know, patriarchal, heterosexist place. <laughs> so, so you grow up with these messages are, that, um, you, if you don't fit the dominant norm of what leadership looks like, um, or the dominant gender, all the, the images of who leaders are, and are often white men in movies. Um, I used Dugan, John Dugan has this great exercise that I borrowed slash stole from him, where he had students do a typical prototype of a leader. So who do you think when you're trying to write about what's the dominant narrative in the U.S. about leadership? draw a picture of that person and label the parts, right? Like, what are they thinking? What are they feeling? What kind of, what's their race and gender? So they always draw like a white man with a briefcase. And then I say, now draw a prototype of leadership or social change. And it's so interesting to, that we put out the two pictures and compare and contrast sort of how those things are different. Um, and so you start to see um, where this 
why the messages shape a certain view about leadership and about women as being capable. So first of all, they're in this milieu that tells them they're less than. Um, and then there's, I don't know if you read the section on the Ophelia complex, which is so interesting, this like time in middle school where girls start to give away their power. Yes. So oftentimes, yeah, and the socialization story is that girls are often um, just as assertive and just as contributing in both the classroom and outside of the classroom, even like in sports and things until middle school. And then all of a sudden um, they start to get into this insecurity and, and pleasing zone. Um, so they sort of give away parts of their identity. Um, and so it's really interesting to think about that and like how that persists even through college and how social media exacerbates some of those messages around what is belo who belongs and who's worthy of attention. So all of this, I think, contributes everything from the sort of dominant norms that we live in around leadership and gender to sort of the messages that um, girls and women in all the spaces, there's this beautiful narrative, um, hard to hear, but powerful narrative a woman writes about being an athlete and how she was so awesome at kickball in fifth grade and she was the best. And then in high school, when she wanted to play with the boys, everybody called her a slut and a try hard. And like, why was she um, so bossy and bitchy on the field? And like all the, just the shift of her, I'm a happy athlete who does well, you know, I'm a person who loves athletics and does well, you know, and then watching, how the messages changed just in the course of her K-12 schooling it was fascinating, right? Um, and so we do a lot of that stuff to ourselves. Um, and so I always look to Bender. I think your other question was like ways we combat this low efficacy. Yes. Yeah. So he writes about like four different ways that you can actually raise efficacy. So there's some parts in the book where we actually break down those different ways. Mm -hmm. You know, one is like having mentors and role models that reflect um, yourself. And so I know on my campus, our faculty don't reflect our students in race or gender or all kinds of different ways. Um, so how do we have more meaningful role models? How do we help students um, seek feedback and social support? Um, how do we take care of their social emotional health and sense of well-being? So there's a whole bunch of ways. Um, I often share the story of a group of students I work with, they wanted to raise self-advocacy leadership, so they started a program called Someone Caught You Doing Leadership. That <laughs> was like, to like, they'd give people who were doing like quiet leadership like a balloon and a note card, and I was like, this sounds really cheesy, and I have a high cheese tolerance, right? I do myself. I'm a very cheesy person, but it sounds cheesy even to me. Students loved it. The number of people who are like, coming into the leadership office because like I got this balloon that I was a leader. Like, so I, I was eating my words that that little piece of peer recognition actually boosted self-efficacy, their belief they could do it and they would start showing up at programs when they met out of before. So I think it can range from these really system, systemic kind of things to actually small acts that can help somebody build self-efficacy. What do you think? Have you had thoughts about this? I love, I love that program idea. It's adorable. Um, yeah, you know, I've been thinking a lot about you talk in the book about the like effortless perfection phenomenon and the ways that women are expected to be perfect, but without the illusion of it being hard. Um, and it may, that makes me think, you know, about the ways in which women struggle to have real life leaders to model their behavior on. Like if, again, sort of that pedestal idea that if, if women are expected to be per effortlessly perfect, um, and I am looking at someone like that and thinking, gosh, I'll never be like that. I'm never going to be, it, it's too hard for me, but it's not hard for them. So I must not be supposed to do this. Right. And I think about that terrible loop between, so to me, effortless perfection works tandem with imposter syndrome, like an insidious cycle, right? So mm -hmm. like, I need to be perfect, but I, no, I'm not, nobody's perfect. And so they're going to find out that I'm not perfect. So that's the imposter right. syndrome. So then you're like, live in this horrible loop where, um, you are both, trying so hard to be something that's impossible and then also constantly fearful that you're going to be uncovered as not perfect. And so like, gosh, what a tough way to go through life. Right. Right. Well, and I think too, back to that idea of the study. And again, I probably butchered the numbers, but of women applying for jobs or promotions, unless they meet every single outline criteria, mm -hmm. um, that the same thing is true for being like willingness to take on a leadership position that like I, you know, if I don't feel like if this position of leadership is going to require this thing and I am, you know, I haven't had this exact experience or I haven't had developed this perf this exact skill, um, 
then I'm less likely or, or more afraid to take that on, um, which then means I get less opportunity to practice leadership and get better at leadership. And so I just continually step back from opportunities that might help me to, to really develop the skills that, I, that I'm in my head perceiving that I'm lacking. Yes, this is where Brene Brown's work is so helpful about helping people get over the, you know, the gifts of imperfection, helping people learn to fail. I like the fail forward is another book I enjoy that students find helpful failing forward. Um, but this idea that we have to help people not be so scared of what it means to be imperfect. <laughs> so. Absolutely, absolutely. So as we um, kind of come to the end of our time, I wish we could go on forever, but I want to end asking you, um, well, let me first say, there's a section of the book that you refer to as the doom and gloom section. Um, and there's certainly, you know, portions of that because we're, again, talking about tough subjects of, as I've just indicated about some of the things that are going on in our campuses, all important things, but things that are um, sometimes hard to face. Um, so how do you remain realistic, um, but also without dampening aspirations and, and sort of motivation? Yes, well, one of the, uh, the I liked one of the, the gifts for me in this book was that Bobby Harrow, who I've long admired, um, a so, they're a sociologist, and they gave me permission to repurpose their cycle of socialization and their cycle of liberation. Um, and so while their work kind of showcases all the ways that we are socialized um, to believe sort of oppressive and dominant messages, there's also a way out, right? So um, I end the, on this idea of critical hope, which I certainly did not invent, but I think was something we need to nurture in all students. And sometimes we forget to do that. We forget to sort of anchor um, our realism and our, our cynicism and our critique in hope, um, hope for the moving forward. So I thought maybe we'd end, if you don't mind, if I read a quote, um, one of my favorite leadership books ever, you didn't ask, but I'm going to just tell you, is Preskill and Brookfield's Leading as a Way of Learning from 2009. If you haven't read Leading as a Way of Learning, it's a beautiful uh, connection of social justice, uh, learning theory, and leadership. Um, it's just, I read it, I try to read it like once a year just to remind myself how awesome it is. Um, and so Preskill and Brookfield talk about critical hope, and here's what they say. They say, hope will not make change happen, but without hope, change is impossible. Mm -hmm. Without a sense that ordinary people work together, working together are potentially limitless, the journey towards justice cannot even begin. Hope is not a sufficient condition to bring about humane, positive change, but is a necessary precondition for doing so. Leaders learn hope, and in turn, learn to bring hopefulness to others, um, which creates a climate of possibility and an atmosphere that anything can happen. And so that's what I wish for students. And I hope we all sort of end our classes with saying it's not enough just to hope, but hope combined with hard work um, and challenging injustice is the work that we are doing. So how do we all stay in hope? That's my wish for uh, leaders and leadership educators today. I love that. And what a wonderful way to end this session. Thank you so much, Julie, for your time today. And I am um, very excited that the conversation doesn't end here. So um, as I mentioned at the beginning, we are doing a series around um, the book. And so we do have two more wonderful podcasts coming. Um, and if you don't mind, would you tell us a little bit um, about some of our guests that are joining us next week. We're going to really hone in next week on the power of story and leadership development. That's definitely a theme that um, shows up in the book and you utilize narratives throughout the text. And so really excited to, to dive into that. But we'll be joined by um, some other educators as well. And love to just give a little preview of next week for our listeners. Absolutely. And thank you, Kate, for this was such a fun discussion. Like, um, hopefully people get that we got to be real and like you're, um, I loved our exchange, right? Like the fact that we, um, the energy that you brought was very reaffirming. So thank you for that. And I also want to thank the NASPA Leadership Educators Knowledge Community for being willing to commit to this amazing series or this fun series of conversations. So next week, tune in next week. Um, <laughs> I know podcasts don't always work like that. Um, but next week, we're going to be talking about the use of narratives and counter narratives. Um, as I said, as a white woman with many privileged identities, it was really important to, to bring in stories that weren't my story into the book. And so one way to add multivocality, to use a fancy word, it was, was to invite um, these student authors to share narratives. Um, and they're very brave in what they end up sharing. And they add like different snapshots and the students can see themselves in their peers' stories, I think. So I was gonna, gonna invite, um, we're gonna have 
Sherelle Hassel-Goodman and Awi Yamanaka, who are both doctoral students. Well, now Awi is Dr. Yamanaka, um, but at George Mason University, we're part of this multi-year research team where we did a collective autoethnographic process, which if you don't know what that is, don't worry. <laughs> it sounds scary, but it was that story sharing process we talked about. And so they, we're gonna share a little bit about what they felt like in um, generating their narratives and how they hope their narratives are useful to people um, who are using the book throughout. And then also I'll be joined by the talented Dr. Jennifer Pigza from St. Mary's College in California. And she's done a lot of thinking about the power of story from her dissertation work. Um, and she's also the lead editor on the facilitation guide that goes along with the We Are the Leaders book. Um, and she, there's some modules in there about how to put story um, sharing into practice. So I think that's what we're gonna talk about. I'm looking forward to it so much. I am too, I'm thrilled. I think it's gonna be really incredible to hear that and to, I think sounds like we're gonna get some real good takeaways of things that we can put into place um, as leadership educators. So really excited for that. So, so yeah, as Julie said, stay tuned next week. <laughs> and again, Julie, thank you for your time and um, we'll catch back up in a week. Thank you so much. Thanks everyone. Thanks. Bye-bye.